Good morning, everyone. As Father Aaron said, my name is Micah. Um, I, like, I like questions, and I like starting with questions, uh, but my question this morning might make me lose a little bit of credibility, so if you could hang with me, that'd be awesome. Um, how many of you, and I'm going to need some congregation participation, so if you could raise your hand just so I know what I'm working with. How many of you have seen Runaway Bride with Julia Roberts? Oh, great. That's good news. That's really good news. Um, I'm from her hometown, and, uh, and I have three older sisters and no brothers, so I stood no chance. Um, I've, I've seen the movie probably close to like 25 times. Um, yeah, and it's not my favorite movie, but it's good, but nah, that's beside the point. Um, but for those of you who haven't seen it, all right, for those of you who haven't seen it, the main character, Julia Roberts, um, is engaged seven different times, okay? And every day when the, the wedding day rolls around, uh, the, the people, the guests to the wedding come to the church or the park or the field, wherever it is, depending on the new arrangements. Um, and they're all so curious and expectant to see, is she going to go through with it this time? Is she actually going to do it? And, and the music starts playing and, and the groom's standing up at the front, smiling kind of nervously. <laughs> and, and she starts walking down the aisle and then the music changes. The music changes and then she looks down and she swallows, and she takes a step back, and then everybody starts whispering. And before you really have the chance to hope for a change, she's running out the door and conveniently jumps on a UPS truck that's driving away and rides off into the distance. Um, this is supposed to be a lighthearted romantic comedy. Uh, she does end up marrying Richard Gere, in case you're wondering. Um, but for some of us who've seen the movie, in between the laughs and in between the expectation for us to like to find for her to finally get it, we resonate with something. Like we can we can sympathize a little bit with her desire to run away, uh, and some of us have done it. Maybe not as dramatically as Julia Roberts, uh, but enough to make our jokes about commitment issues with our friends only ever half jokes. You know what I'm saying? Um, have you ever run away from someone that you trusted? Maybe not for good reason. All of us have our issues, right? And uh, a little self, well, a lot of self-disclosure. Uh, this is definitely one of mine, probably top three. Um, and my friends know it. My friends know that about me. Uh, and I praise God for that because they, they, know, they, they know how to read the signs. Uh, and when, when necessary, they know how to, so to speak, tie me down. Um, because my tendency to run away can destroy my relationships. Um, in the season of, of losing one particular friend, um, I kind of justified cutting off my friendship with him uh, because we both changed a ton and we were growing in different directions and I didn't really, he couldn't really relate to me anymore. And um, if I'm honest, I always felt like I had to be defensive around him. And, and so when someone would ask me about the friendship, I'd say, yeah, you know, it's, it's so sad that the friendship's over, but, I, you know, I, I guess it just kind of had to happen. It's probably for the best. Uh, when honestly... I, I was being pretty selfish. Um, as you can probably imagine, this issue uh, bleeds its way into my relationship with the Lord. Uh, I've tried to run away from God several times since I've become a Christian, and the closest I got was four years ago, this month actually. Um, I couldn't feel God in that season. Um, and my mind was filling with reasons why he might not be there. Uh, what if I was wrong? And what if I had consigned myself to a life of being committed to this God who isn't actually there? Um, 
And can God really exist in the first place? I mean, what about human suffering and other religions and insert reason to question the existence of God here? I was asking it. And did I mention that in this season of asking all of these intellectual questions four years ago, I was in the throes of several habitual sins that I had no intention of stopping. Friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that when our hearts harden toward God, it's almost always a product of sin. When our hearts harden toward God, it is almost always a product of sin. We can say we have reasons or unanswered questions that put a wedge between us and God, but if we're really honest with ourselves, it's the lure of our sin that plugs our ears to him. That way we can justify running away, because how are we supposed to have a relationship with him if we can't hear him? After all, God and me, you know, we're just kind of growing in different directions, right? We're growing in different directions. I've changed a ton, and I don't really feel like he can relate to me anymore. Oh, and whenever I'm around him, I kind of feel like I have to be defensive. Maybe you can relate to this inner dialogue, and, and I, would, I would challenge you to think about the people in your life that you've known that have walked away from the Lord. When I do, I get all of them have walked away conveniently enough to pursue lifestyles that allow for their sinful habits. I've never known someone to walk away from Jesus Christ solely because of a cognitive disagreement with beliefs. There's always more skin in the game than that. Usually something's at stake. Something we're not willing to give up. And in our passage today, God is teaching us who we are so that we will be delivered from the things that tempt us to run away from him. Because, and this is the scary part of the sermon, as a Christian, you and I can still indulge in our sinful habits of sin, and they'll harden our hearts and plug our ears toward God. And, and I say this next part with as little preachiness as possible because I mean it. Jesus Christ actually offers us a better way. He offers us a better way. And it is in the way of Christ that you learn who you really are. And what I'm going to tell you this morning is that you are made to be a follower in this way of Christ. So if you will with me, um, oh, no, not yet. Hold still. Uh, so as Father Aaron said, this is the first Sunday of Lent, right? And, and Lent is the, the season uh, where the church um, recognizes that we have entered into the wilderness with Jesus uh, for a time of fasting and, and prayer and confession. And this time is made for us to internalize God's blessing upon us. And I'm going to shamelessly borrow from Father Aaron's book a little bit this morning. Um, he says that, that God's sending Israel into the wilderness for the 40 years following their incredible freedom from Egypt is not God setting up Israel to earn their salvation. So why does God send them there? He sends them into the wilderness so that they can internalize what it means to be saved, what it means that they've been set free. And for those of you unfamiliar with the story, the people of Israel had been led out of Egypt by the mighty hand of God. Uh, they'd seen miraculous displays of God's power and uh, wonders performed for their salvation. And yet, the journey in the desert for 40 years um, before being brought into the promised land is hard. It's very hard. And it's during these 40 years that Israel is tempted to run away from God and find other gods to protect them. Because even though God had done some incredible things back then, to free them from slavery to Egypt, the desert's hot, and it's hard, 
and they're scared. And as a result, their hearts grow hard. Christians, I'm just going to cut straight through and and show you the the connection to us. Uh, You, Christian, are in the wilderness or the desert now. All right? You have been set free, like Israel, from slavery, from slavery to sin. And you're waiting now to be brought into the promised land, the new heavens, the new earth that God is, is bringing for us. But now it's hot and it's dry and you're hungry. And I want to ask you this. Have you ever chosen to be blatantly obstinate toward God and his instruction? This can look like a whole host of things. Uh, It can look like finding reasons to stay away from the church. Uh, It can look like being overly critical of scripture or people who speak positively about scripture. Um, It can be choosing the false comfort of excessive food or Netflix. Uh, And it can look like a period of unrestrained sin. This is what Israel does in the wilderness. You can relate to them in a way. They question the God of their salvation. I mean, sure, God did some amazing things back then, but what about now? God calls this episode in the wilderness an exhibit of Israel's hardness of heart. And get this, he says that because of that, they couldn't hear him. We are no different in this way. When we rebel against God, friends, when we cannot hear his voice, And we cannot hear his voice when our hearts are hard. And our hearts are hardened by our sin. So if you will, um, I'm going to break the passage up into three sections. Verses 17 to 19, uh, 20 uh, through 24, and then 25 to the end. So if you take notes or structure, that's kind of how it's going to work. If you will with me, please read the first three verses of our passage this morning. So verses 17 through 19. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Here in this passage, the Gentiles are simply people who aren't of faith, unbelievers. Uh, And according to Paul, they walk in the futility of their minds. They're separated or alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance. And they're ignorant because of their hardness of heart. So if you were to map it out, right, you've got hardness of heart leads to ignorance. Ignorance leads to separation, alienation from God. But the question is, what causes this in the first place? Paul says it's, it's the practice of giving themselves up to sensuality. Their endless hunger and pursuit of impurity. And if you're anything like me, when I first read this, I wonder, why the heck is Paul giving uh, the church of Ephesians, believers, a detailed exposition of the anatomy of an unbelieving heart? These are people of faith. So why do they need to be taught about what the unbelieving heart looks like? It doesn't really apply to them after all, right? Look at verse 17. Paul says, this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do. As Christians, as those wandering in the desert with God, we have the capacity to become hard-hearted toward him by giving ourselves up to sensuality and impurity. And I want you to listen to a warning from elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, And I want you to kind of be shocked by it. 
Because this is to Christians. Listen to this. Take care, brothers, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is to us. Be careful that an evil, unbelieving heart isn't calcifying in your chest so that you fall away from the living God. What the heck? Right? That should catch your attention. It certainly catches mine. And, and I, I want to call you to, this morning is a calling to, to be, be aware. Be aware of the, the deceitfulness of your sin. What it tries to convince you of, what it tells you. Um, this warning, this warning is the danger of choosing to live like people who are not of faith. When we participate in their sinfulness, when we indulge the sensuality of our flesh unrestrained, when we explore all sorts of impurity and ungodliness, we are plating our hearts with calluses that make us look at God with dangerous suspicion. Brothers and sisters, it is a heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin that looks at God's work in your life, looks at your salvation, and says, yeah, he, I think he did stuff back then. Maybe I was just delusional, right? Maybe I was just like, I was, it was the people I was around or it was the food I ate that day because, because he's not here now. And I, I have these desires and these hungers for all sorts of things. And, and God can't possibly call me to be hungry. That's inhumane. Friends, God does call us to be hungry. And he calls us to be satisfied by something far greater than our sin. However, this rebellious language, that inner dialogue, questioning what God has done in the past, it's kind of the first steps of tying your shoes to get ready to run away. Um, this is why Paul warns you and me against walking like faithless people. Our sin clouds our minds and our ears. We're not to walk like them anymore because our salvation didn't come from them in the first place. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. But Christian, you are not. And so if you're here this morning and you're not following Christ yet, I do want to encourage you that this sermon is still just as much for you. Uh, but rather than hearing this as a warning against a, a sinful way of life, I want you to hear me say this. Your separation from God and your hardness of heart and your skepticism, the answers to that are not found in your reason. And they're not found in your mastery of Christian beliefs. They're found in Jesus Christ himself. And Christians, that applies to you. So for believers uh, and skeptics alike, if you would please read with me uh, verses 20 through 24. And what I want you to notice is that verse 20 begins with a contrast. So he's shifting. Verses 17 through 19, he's talking about the way of, of the wicked and, and the, uh, the unbelieving. And then he says this in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul begins this, this section by saying, that's not the way you learned Christ. The way of Christ, friends, 
is a way that he has forged for us. It's, it's a way that is, it's soft. It's a softness of heart toward God. And the last thing I want you to think from this sermon, because this sermon is, it's a little bit heavier. Um, the last thing I want you to think is that God is calling you to some mystical and unreasonable standard of living. A, a legalistic expectation given by God who doesn't know what it's like to hunger and to hurt and to long in the wilderness. On the contrary, the way of Christ is a way lived by Christ himself and given to you. Notice that Paul says that those who have learned Christ are taught in him. As the truth is in Jesus. Okay, and I'm when talking about the hardness of heart, I tried to think of like a million illustrations, I promise. It's really hard to find one better than Israel, but I know that that can be like a little taxing, so I'm going to ask you to stick with me, okay? Try and stick with me on this, because it is really, really a helpful illustration. Um, think back to Israel in the wilderness, okay? God frees them from oppression to Egypt, from slavery, uh, where they've been enslaved for 400 years, mind you. And he sends plagues against Egypt, does incredible miracles. He's flexing a little bit, showing off his power to the world. And then he takes them out of Egypt and he brings them into the desert. And it's there in the dry and desolate wilderness that Israel's heart hardens and begins to doubt God. And friends, the rest of their history is marked by, by God speaking to them, telling them that their heart is diamond hard in one place and that it's keeping them deaf to the voice of God, and, and it makes them unable to fear him as God. However, God makes a promise to this people, this people with a chronic issue of hardness of heart, and he says this. Hear the, mag the magnitude of this promise. He says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, here God himself is promising to fix their issue. He's promising to fix their hardness of heart. My early life as a Christian uh, was kind of clouded under a bit of a shadow of uh, seeing God the Father as like a stern and distant father that's only willing to help me with issues that I can't really prevent like anxiety or depression or, um, yeah, fill in the blank. However, uh, issues stemming from my own, like, choices, like sexual sin, lack of self-discipline, those were off limits for God's help. Because in my mind, he'd already helped me by giving me the choice. I was the one that messed it up, so I needed to suffer the consequences. And what this passage reveals to me, this promise that God gives to Israel in their obstinacy, is that God is not a father that requires me to be innocent before he helps me. He is not a father that requires you to be innocent before he helps you. He is a father who both administers the consequences of our sin and, and stays with us as we endure them and brings us out. But Here's the question. Uh, Israel's heart became really hard. I'm talking like hard enough so that they were sacrificing their children to other gods and idols. Their kids. So what does God promise to do? He promises to punish them. And he promises to give them a new heart. 
he deals with their issue to bring them into a better way of living. Living with a soft heart toward God. But where does that heart come from? And this is where Ephesians ties in. So there's my long illustration to hopefully hit this point home. Brothers and sisters, this soft heart is the heart of Jesus. After God blesses Jesus at his baptism, where does he send him? Into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights where he will be tempted, like Israel, to harden his heart and close his ears to the voice of God. But instead, Jesus does what Israel couldn't do. And he makes a way for us to tag along. A way of living in the wilderness with a soft heart and with ears open to the voice of God and closed to the whispered lies of our sin. That is what Paul means when he says that those who have learned Christ are those who were taught in him to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God. Hmm. In true righteousness and holiness, this new self is Christ. What Paul kind of says vaguely here, he says explicitly in Romans. So if you're questioning, if, if, if that's a question, like this new self can actually be Christ, listen to this in Romans. It's amazing. He says, walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The way of Christ, hear this, the way of Christ is the way in and with Christ. The one who entered the wilderness with a soft heart and the one who thwarted the deceptions of Satan. Christian, you have been united to him by the power of God. And you are both able and called to walk in this way. But before I move on to my last point in the sermon, which is kind of the practical outworkings of all of this, like what does the way of Christ actually practically look like every day? Uh, there's a warning in Scripture for you and I. And, and I don't think I would be, uh, I don't think I'd really be doing my job this morning if, if I didn't point it out. Um, you and I can listen to the deceitfulness of sin and allow our hearts to calcify to the point of being deaf toward God. And about this, God says to the church, this is, this is what God's saying to people in the church who are being pulled away like this. He says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And then do you know what he says next? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. That's what Paul's saying to the church in Corinth. That's what God is saying to his church as a whole. And I'm saying to you, my beloved family of Emmanuel, flee from the things, the idols that tempt you to run away from God. You know what they are. Uh, the vices that make you wonder if following God is really worth it. Because if you're honest, you really want them. Flee those things. Because fleeing sin is not for nothing. Entertaining those voices threatens to harden your heart. Um, so now let's move to the last section of the passage. Uh, Paul is now going to describe what life in the new self is like. Okay, so we're kind of dealing up here, like you, you're united to Christ, and, and this is your new reality, and walk in the way of Christ. 
and, and as any good church would ask, okay, what do I, how do I do that once I wake up? How do I do that on my way to work? Uh, and and that's, that's what Paul's kind of giving us. So if you will with me, please uh, listen or read with me as I read verses 25 through 32. Therefore, in light of all this, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's a lot of text. Very practically, friends, the way of Christ makes no room for lies, anger, theft, and degrading speech. Um, I'm not saying anything you've never heard before. But what I want to say again is that these are not legalistic demands. These are God's invitation for you to live life with him in the way that he's already forged for you. Uh, these aren't classroom rules. These aren't classroom rules. These are uh, instructions for a journey in the wilderness that gives your heart and your imagination the time to catch up to the incredible reality of your salvation. It's a lot of words. I'm going to try and say it again. Um, these are instructions for a journey in the wilderness that give your heart and your imagination the time to catch up to the incredible reality of your salvation. Friends, we have not fully realized the magnitude of what has happened in us, in our union with Christ. And we're called to walk in the way of Christ so that we can further and further experience the greatness of our salvation. This is true both individually and corporately. Individually, you, your heart needs this gracious, truth-filled, generous, and edifying environment for your heart to, to internalize the glory of your salvation. You can't do that in an environment that's toxic with lies and, and degrading speech. But corporately, and this is kind of what, this is how I want us to read this section, because this is Paul's address to the church as a whole. The new self that you've been given, I, I, I don't get the, the new self Micah, I get Jesus Christ. And, and you don't get the new self you, you get Jesus Christ. And so when we put on the new self together, this exhortation of this way of life, these practical things, is for us as a church. And so corporately, church, our communal way of life that is gracious, generous, truth-filled, and edifying allows our corporate heart and our corporate imagination to catch up to the glory of who we are. We are the bride of Christ. We're the people of God. And we have been called to walk in the way of Christ because we belong there. 
So the rest of this passage, like I said, is very practical things in the way of Christ, and I'm going to go through them. Um, and I'm just going to kind of go uh, through each one. Um, stay tracking with me, because it's, it's fun. It's good stuff, uh, but it's a lot of stuff. And so uh, I'm, I try to simplify it, uh, hopefully. We'll see. Okay, so um, in verse 25, Paul condemns falsehood, because we're members one of another. Um, falsehood or lying hardens our hearts to those we're lying to. Uh, and you can actually testify that to me uh, by me simply asking you this. Take a moment and think about a time when someone really close to you lied to you and you found out about it. By and large, uh, you all are looking at me with harder faces than when I started this sermon. And that's because lies are painful breaches of trust. They're really painful. Um, and, and friends, God is speaking to us so that we speak like he does, honestly and graciously. And that's, that's kind of what's behind Paul's command here. And then he moves to the next command, which I find really interesting. And uh, maybe you've had questions about it. I certainly have. In verses 26 and 27, we get this interesting exhortation. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Anger is a slippery thing. Um, and, and hear me say this. There is a place for anger in the face of injustice. However, friends, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, we will have no shortage of opportunities to be angry. And anger is deceptive. Once it ignites, it has great potential to engulf you and lead you into all other sorts of sin. And as I was thinking about this, uh, I tried to think of a helpful example, and the best one I found was um, Jesus, surprisingly enough. Um, Paul says, rather than giving the devil an opportunity, do not let the sun go down in your anger. Meaning, if you're getting angry in the day, don't go to bed still angry. Um, and I thought of Jesus' anger toward the Pharisees, because he's angry at them. He says that they have shut the, kingdom of, the doors of the kingdom of heaven in their faces, if there's ever reason to be angry at someone, that's it. But Jesus doesn't burn in endless rage over the Pharisees. What does he do? He rebukes their falsehood. Um, he denounces their evil. And then he goes and he opens the doors of the kingdom of heaven for the people that have been misled. Notice, Jesus' anger is motivated by compassion, those that are being hurt. And so what does that motivate him to do? It motivates Jesus into self-denying ministry, not self-exalting rage. That's the way of anger, friends. If it's motivated by compassion, it gives way to compassion before your head hits the pillow. Moving along. Uh, <laughs> I got lost, sorry. <laughs> uh, so moving along in the passage. Uh, look at the final two things listed in verses 28 and 29. Paul instructs thieves to not only stop stealing, but to work really hard so they're able to provide for others. Uh, and then when he rebukes people for unwholesome speech or degrading speech, it's paired, it's connected to a command to use gracious speech. So you're giving grace to those who hear you. 
Both of these commands are a denial of something that is destructive for the sake, not for something neutral, but for something edifying. And I don't want you to get me wrong, both of these commands are hard. Um, But Jesus Christ calls us into the wilderness. He calls us into hard work and gracious speech, not for nothing, but for others. He calls us into the wilderness and to hard work for others. Financial sacrifice and self-restraint. Family, this is the way of Christ. So uh, how do I conclude all of this? It's a lot of text. Um, And let me start by saying this. There are two ways to respond to God in the wilderness. And we're sitting there, right? First way of responding. We um, We can live like those people who don't have faith. We can indulge the sensuality of our flesh unrestrained and live with our hearts hardening by by the deceitfulness of our sin. In this way, your sin deceives you and leads you deeper and deeper into rebellion against God. And family, the best word I could find to give you for this is beware. Beware of that. There's a warning there in Scripture, and it's not to be glossed over. However, the second way of responding is the way of Christ. Jesus enters into the wilderness with ears sensitive to the voice of his father. And because his ears are sensitive to the voice of his father, his ears are hard to the deceitfulness of sin. He doesn't listen to Satan. He speaks the words of his father. Brothers and sisters, God has removed your heart of stone, and given you a heart of flesh. Jesus Christ's heart of flesh, mind you. And when we choose to run away from him, by running to our sin, we grieve him. Because that's not the way of life that he's made for us. Jesus has made it possible for us to put away bitterness and anger and slander and malice so that we can walk in his way, a better way, kindness toward one another, tender-hearted and forgiving, because that's who God is. And family, that is who you are in Christ. We are followers in the way of Christ. I love literature, uh, and I love poetry, uh, and um, I found a poem that I think is, is a really in- incredible way to get at kind of the heart of this sermon. Not for you to walk away feeling the uh, oppression uh, and and weight and guilt, but for you to know that God is calling you into a way that is life-giving, and he's there to bring you into it. In this poem, uh, I encourage you to read the whole thing. It's not very long. I'm only going to read four lines. Um, It's called Tempted, uh, and it's by Eugene Peterson, funny enough. Um, Theologian, he's also a poet, I found out. And in this poem, he's talking about Satan testing Jesus' baptismal blessing. So God blesses Jesus, pronounces this incredible um, blessing upon him, and then Jesus goes into the wilderness. And about Satan testing him, Eugene Peterson says this in this poem. He says, for 40 days and nights, he tests the baptismal blessing and proves to his dismay. This man is made of sterner stuff than Adam. 
This man will choose to be the son God made him. I'm going to read it again. For 40 days and nights, he tests the baptismal blessing and proves to his dismay, this man is made of sterner stuff than Adam. This man will choose to be the son God made him. To my brothers and sisters here this morning who have been baptized in Jesus Christ, Jesus' baptismal blessing is yours. And so what does that mean? It means that you can be, choose to be the son and the daughter that God has made you. It's who you are. So when temptation comes, and when you fail, when you fail by sinning against the Lord, keep your heart soft by not listening to the lies of your sin. Instead, instead of sitting in it, repent and believe the gospel. That's the way of Christ. So this morning, uh, thank you uh, for, for listening. And um, I encourage you after, as you leave today, as you go through this week, um, first week of Lent, first full week of Lent, it's hard. I encourage you to read this again um, with these things in view. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.